Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And joining us today on the phone is Vice President and Principal Analyst Brian Hopkins to discuss the state and future of quantum computing. Welcome, Brian. Hi, thanks a lot. Fair warning to our listeners that this episode gets pretty technical pretty quickly. Quantum computing is a very exciting term. Could you just, before we get started, define what we mean by that? Sure. Uh, um, I think the best way to think about quantum computing is to think of it as a new compute paradigm. And that's how we classified in our research report, the top emerging technologies to watch. It's part of that group of emerging new ways to conduct computing. So what that really means is quantum computers aren't like digital computers, and they tend to think like classical or digital computers, because that's what we know. We've known it for 20, 20 years plus. And so when you get in the realm of quantum computing, you got to think it's a totally different way of, of getting answers to problems. So the simple concept for a quantum computer is it is a new way to get answers to problems that are computationally difficult with the way that our current central processing unit, binary, digital, ones and zeros based computers work. And so you have to have new chips that are able to get answers to these hard problems using new algorithms faster. So should I think of this in terms of speed? It's faster. Parallel processing, it could do many things at one time. That it can handle the complex and sometimes unknown many-to-many relationships that exist in data. How should I think of the differences in what it's computing? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think your question belies one of those assumptions that we make in digital. When we think about digital computers, one of the ways digital computers uh, get faster answers is by splitting one big task into many parallel tasks. And then computing those parallel tasks and then bringing all the little computations together in another step. That's a digital solution to a problem that there's to the issue that there's some problems so big and nasty that the only way we can solve them in, in digital computing is to split them up. Right? So when you think about quantum computers, there is no parallel processing in quantum computers because quantum computers don't have random access memory. You can't take the intermediate results of a quantum computation, store that complex, rich bit of information in some quantum version of RAM, and then move it on to the next step in the processing cycle. We don't have that today. So it's almost like you have to think it's an alien type of computer. It just doesn't work like anything we're used to. So you feed it some data, you program it by creating some logic gates, so it's very low-level stuff, and out pops the probable answer. If I have a problem, a very discrete problem that is computationally difficult to do in a classical computer as the amount of data that I have to consider grows, so to the point that I can't get an answer, quantum computers gives me another mathematics to write that algorithm in that I can hope to get an answer in this batch mode. So rather than being like this big, abstract, meaning of life, abstract thinking kind of process, it's really more very, very, very specific, very specialized. It's more about very, a, new, a new quantum-enabled mathematical algorithm development language and set of theories that allow us to create ways to solve very specific problems that we can't solve with classical computers. And that's because there's too much data that today's computers would be just chugging and chugging and chugging and that they would never get to a solution or a resolution, but quantum computers would. Quantum computers could. And that's kind of an important point. 
when you think about quantum computers, the number one thing you have to recognize is before understanding that they're they're really specialized. They're going to solve very certain very special problems. They're not. We're not going to reinvent the way that we do all computer quantum. We're going to use quantum computers to solve very specialized, mostly scientific problems that we can't solve today. But we're not going to reinvent the way that we do computing and write software, at least not in the near term, based on quantum computers. We're going to use quantum computers where they make sense to use. So it's going to supplement, not replace, what we currently do today. So that's number one. The second thing I typically say is in terms of the maturity of quantum computers today, what you really have to focus on is quantum value. And what quantum value means is that there exists a real quantum computer that can solve a real problem that a person has with a return on investment over digital, meaning that it makes sense for me to, to do this via quantum because quantum computers can do it faster and cheaper than I could with a classical computer that I already have and understand. So here's the thing. In no domain, chemistry, machine learning, optimization, materials research, pharma, and no domain have we reached quantum value in any use case today. So every time we think we have reached quantum value, somebody comes along with a classical computer, tunes it, tweaks it, programs it, and says, nope, I can do that with classical better. But we haven't crossed that threshold yet where quantum computers can really do anything for us. So everything that's happening today is experimentation and research. And it's really important that that happened today. Yet in that threshold, are you defining that as a set of physical properties or are you commenting on its underlying architecture, which is the way it, as you describe it, as the batch processing is simply operating differently? Or is it both? It's actually both. It's the, it's the net business decision. Does it financially make sense for me to invest in doing this in a quantum computer because I get better results than doing it with a classical computer today? So, I mean, and, and so that, that answer varies. Everyone who tries to answer that is going to answer it differently because it highly depends on the problem you're trying to solve and what computer resources you have at your disposal. But what I can say is I've yet to talk to anybody or any vendor doing any kind of quantum computing technology development that has definitively said, for this particular customer and this particular problem, they have achieved quantum value. They, it makes more sense pay for the quantum than it does just to solve that problem with, with classical. I haven't talked to one yet. No, no one says that they have. Is that because the skill set's not there or just they figured out the, a way to do it? What, what is underneath that? Yeah, what's underneath that is the basic maturity of the technology. When I was a kid, my best friend's dad built computers in his garage, and we used to dink around and help him. I had the opportunity then to create a computer company, and I should have. I wouldn't be <laughs> wouldn't be working here today. Well, but I like I like working with you, Brian. So you know, all things being yeah, equal, yeah, worked yeah, out for yeah. me. It worked out for me too because I like what I do. Point being is is we he used to build computers from boards in his garage and solder things together and put CPUs in and attach the monitors. I mean, really early. This is back in the early eighties, uh, and so. Um, that's where we are today in quantum computers. We're building chips. We're soldering chips into boards. Obviously, quantum computers require a lot of different kind of hardware. A lot of it needs to be superconducting, vacuum, supercooled, all those things. So we're doing that today. And that's kind of where we are. Um, and dinking and ducking, dunking, trying to figure out what, what useful can I do with this? What kinds of problems? So the quantum computers we have today, and, and, and recognize that I, when I say the kind of quantum computers we have today, there's two types of quantum computers that are, that are um, generally available in the market today. 
There's something called a quantum annealer. You can solve a very specific kind of prop, a problem in a quantum annealer, primarily an optimization problem. And you solve it in a very specific way by mapping that optimization problem onto a annealing-based computing model. So annealing's been around for many years. It's not new, but they, now they've developed a way to solve an optimization problem using an annealing process that's accelerated by quantum effects. So annealers have been around for at least 10 years. Quantum annealers, uh, there's one major one in the marketplace, D-Wave. There's some other ones kind of out there and coming. The problem with, and the the hole that people shoot in the annealing computers is that it's only for these specialized kinds of problems and that other problems that you can, that quantum computers could solve can't be solved by the annealing model. But most of the large vendors and most of the venture investment is going into the universal models. So that's what IBM's doing, Google's doing it, Microsoft's doing it, Intel's doing it. A bunch of companies are investing in the universal model so as I understand what you're saying, Brian, the annealing model sort of looks at optimization, which is a very complex art. The universal model can look at optimization. It can look at creation. It can look at a number of different types of problems and what you're trying to get accomplished in it. So it creates a universality to what you can apply it to. That's how I should think of those two different things. Yeah, cor correct. The universal model is kind of parallel to the universal digital computer. If you look at, you know, like Turing's work yep. and the universal machine. So the universal model in quantum kind of creates a quantum Turing machine kind of thing, where you can do a lot of different things, things we haven't dreamed of yet. The universal model is far less mature than the annealing model. And, and just in terms of mature, I mean, we're, we're early days in an R&D context where there's enough hint of the types of problems we'd like to go after and we'd have to go after them differently. But this is still a little bit like technology-led innovation, which is we, we have this notion that quantum computing is different and can solve these kinds of things. So we're just doing the early, the early work of sort of matching what could be the business problem to what is likely to be a technology kind of option. No, you're exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. Um, it's a technology-led thing where we're exploring the frontiers of what this universal quantum computing model could do let me give you an example. One of the kind of, I think, hype things in the market that kind of goes around, if you've read about quantum online, you've seen it, and that is this idea of this traveling salesman problem, right? So we've all heard of it. It's, it's, you have them salesmen have to visit all the cities in their territory, and you want to compute and how they spend the least amount of gas getting from city to city. And these problems, first off, these are very common problems in logistics and supply chain, and all they show up all over the place. We have today fairly good heuristic rules-based models for approximating solutions to traveling salesmen. Pretty good. Traveling salesman problems have to get on the order of like 10 million cities or bigger before our heuristic kind of approximation algorithms start to really go off track. But there's a lot of problems in the world where we'd like to have 10 million, 100 million, a trillion, a billion different cities. I mean, certainly just looking at the nature and effects of viruses and what that might happen over some period of time, is all these different things that we are envisioning, whether triggered by or not triggered by global warming, all those different things that have a lot of dimensions to them. Absolutely. Computer scientists have this whole classification structure of different problem hardness levels and what kinds of compute theoretical computers can solve them. Traveling salesmen... Problems are classified as something called non-probabilistic or NP-complete. These classes of problems of which traveling salesman is one, but 
last I talked to folks, there exists no universal quantum algorithm to solve NP-complete and NP-hard problems. So when people say, oh, quantum computers are going to solve traveling salesmen, the answer is maybe they will, maybe they won't. That's where the research is. We don't know. So we could spend a ton of time and money trying to solve these traveling salesmen problems with quantum computers and beat our head against the wall for the next 20 years, or some researcher might publish a paper tomorrow saying, hey, I've got a new algorithm that solves traveling salesmen. That's extremely zen. <laughs> it really is extremely zen. But that's where we are with universal quantum computing is we're in this discovery phase. So yep. all the work that's happening on IBM systems, the work that Google's doing, all the work that they're doing in this universal model is by PhD-level physicists and computer scientists and mathematicians developing and testing these different quantum algorithms using today's state-of-the-art, which is about 20 qubits, and about 20 qubits in a real physical computer, hoping that by the time that, that, that computer grows to 100, 200, 300, 400 qubits, the experiment that they ran at the smaller scale will yield realistic answers or yield answers to real questions in this three, four, five hundred scale. So we're kind of trying to shoot ahead of the rabbit and saying as quantum computers grow in power, and qubits are not the only way they do, by the way, as quantum computers grow in power, if we can discover something now, an experiment now, that will allow us to get the benefit later when they grow. One of the things that you have said time and time again is that the time between thinking about something being a far-reaching idea and the time between it hits the mass market is shrinking. And so the reason quantum is capturing people's imagination is because the speed of which we'll go from this conversation to somehow affecting a real outcome somewhere in the world it's just getting shorter and shorter. It could be 10 years. It could be five years. I mean, it's just we're starting to learn how speed works. Yeah, you know, I think you're right, but there's a caveat to that, right? Um, if you take a look at the early days of classical computers, pre-Moore's Law, we didn't really know how quickly CPUs were going to increase. And after we got some data, you know, Moore drew his line and said, oh, you know, here's the law. Here's how quickly things are going to move. And, and so by the time we understood how quickly things were accelerating with classical computers, it was many years. We had a lot of data, and the herky-jerky nature of how quickly the technology advanced, all that engineering was done. So we could pretty much say, based on the data, we're fabricating transistors on silicon so that the distance is shrinking, and we're doubling every 18 months. And then we could kind of predict where this was going. We could see the exponential curves. And in hindsight, that was all great. But in the early days, when they were still trying to discover how to fabricate silicon chips, nobody knew that. So the next breakthrough could come next week, or it could be two years from now. Right. <laughs> we just don't know. Right. And that's where we are where are in quantum. We don't have enough data to project how quickly quantum computers will increase in, increase in power. Now, I will say, one of the things that gets people excited about quantum computers is the double exponential potential increases in power that they have. So think about this. And this is potential. This isn't reality. We... A lot of physical factors are going to influence how quickly real quantum computers increase in power. But potentially, with every qubit you add into a quantum computer, you double the power of the computer, the potential power of the computer. But I also think part of the reason why this is showing up in your work, showing up in a podcast, is that 
some very well-known providers like IBM are putting out announcements. And so there's investment monies put behind it. There's there's some clarity that there's a line out there that, that when once crossed changes the game. So it's not just it's a set of theoretical ideas. It's that there's real commercial dollars being put, I mean, albeit R&D dollars, but put behind this thing right now. You bet. I mean, obviously, IBM has been a heavy investor in this. Google is investing a lot in it. Intel has been investing a lot. Microsoft jumping at the game. If there wasn't a there there, these big, well-funded and very smart companies would not be investing in what they're investing. But they are also kind of taking some big risks. It's interesting, you know, IBM made that announcement at CES about Q-System 1. And that's a really important, you know, I talk about the physical challenges and engineering challenges that have to be solved. So the IBM announcement at CES was is a good example of making progress against some of the engineering problems that, that are going to affect how fast quantum computers get powerful. So the Q-System 1 announcement is significant because it's the first time we've, we've thought of quantum computers not as, here's a chip, here's some software, here's a, um, a containment system, here's all the components you need. But individually, Q-System 1 is a modular system. So what it's going to allow IBM to do is to optimize how that system performs as a whole by changing different components and optimizing different components, whether it's the cooling system, how they keep the, the, the processors in the vacuum, um, the kind of uh, chip that they have in it, the software that they've written around that, the compiler they've written around that. All those things can now be optimized as a system and modularly replaced. You see, up until today, if you wanted a quantum computer, you had to buy the whole thing. You had to buy the box. And if you wanted a better quantum computer, you threw that box away and you bought a new box for a great cost. In a modular system, you don't have to buy new boxes. You can just put new chips in, put new cooling systems in, put new software in. So we can start to look at how the overall system performs and make smart decisions to increase the power of the system and not just focus on making chips with more qubits. So against the backdrop of big theoretical change, what you're seeing is a very pragmatic approach to make progress. And that's what, that's what IBM's announcement gives us. But I think it's one step, a significant step, in a journey that's, you know, theoretically a thousand miles long. We don't even know how long the journey is because we don't, can't see the end of the road. So we took a step. Now we've got to take another step and another step, not necessarily knowing that the end game could be still a long way off. Yeah, but I think I think the concept in the technology markets now is that that kind of mindset is increasingly required because technology is going to offer possibilities that we simply can't imagine. We have to let those things take take hold, right? Oh yeah, I mean that's the that's the key of this concept of tech led or tech driven innovation is the pace of technology change is almost taken on a life of its own. The only way that you can really get ahead of these trends is to be a part of that innovation that's understanding the boundaries of what technology can do and being positioned for it. And quantum computing is a perfect example. So, Brian, there's a lot of energy around this. And Mm -hmm. I'm a smart CIO. How should I interpret what's happening now? Do I, am I late? Am I early? Do I dance? Do I not dance? What do I do in the next year or two years just to, understand how to think of quantum computing and how to take those first steps? So first off, you're not late. Second, other than building up your your general knowledge around what quantum computing is so you can think about it correctly, there's two practical areas where CIOs need to pay attention today. 
so CIOs need to start understanding where quantum computers are going to play into their overall architecture, and that's going to be through APIs and, and cloud and microservices and those things. So investments in those things will allow you to set your business up to take advantage of quantum computing as those capabilities mature. So that's number one. Number two, security. And we haven't even talked about security yet, right? We believe that quantum computers will threaten public key encryption in the 10 to 20-year time frame um, as they mature. That gives time for the industry to work on quantum-safe encryption and quantum-safe algorithms and all those things. But because the spade at which quantum computers are evolving and the unknowns, it could be sooner than that or it could be much longer. So you need to understand as a CIO, because most of the data that lives in your organization lives in systems that you own, what is, are the security impacts of quantum computing? When do you need to pay attention? When do you need to start thinking about uh, having other uh, encryption architectures so that you can accurately judge this as it moves forward? You need to get smart on that. So, so those two things will dominate this. I think that CIA's interest in quantum computing for the next year or so. But there are other things that you need to do to begin to help your business who may be coming to you to say, hey, is quantum a good fit for XYZ? When are we going to buy a quantum? Should we buy a quantum computer? Under what cases would a quantum computer help us that are more educational in nature? Well, you need to have somebody in your technology research organization owning and looking at and tracking quantum computing so that you can help your business understand where it should be investing its innovation help. Brian, thank you so much for your time. It was uh, educational for me, a heck of a ride. Thank you. You bet. Thanks a lot. Master Tech-Driven Innovation at Forrester's Digital Transformation Forums in Chicago, London, and Mumbai. Join our analysts and business technology leaders to hear the trends and challenges that you will face in the coming year. For more information and to reserve your seat, visit for.com slash DT2019. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash E-T 2019. Thanks for listening.